Hey listener, Editing Chris here. Hallie and Catherine used a internet service to record this particular episode, and we've used it in the past before, and it's worked great, but for some reason this time, Catherine's audio is a little distorted and maybe even slowed down in places, so we probably won't be using it again, but you can still understand everything that she says, and we think you'll learn a lot of great stuff. I know I really enjoyed listening to it as I edit it, so stick with it and let us know if you have any questions. Hello and welcome to One to Grow on a show where we dig into questions about agriculture and try to understand how food production impacts us and our world. My name is Hallie Casey and I studied and currently work in agriculture. And this week, we got Catherine back. Number three, (laughs) y'all. When I said that just now, I couldn't think of anything except for the number We've Got Annie from the musical Annie. (laughs) I forgot about that one. We've got Catherine. It's very jazzy. And there's a really long scarf for some reason. Yeah. Is that the one that um like she sings when she first gets to Daddy Warbucks house? No, it's the one that the secretary sings with Punjab, <gasps> one of the most racially offensive yeah. characters in that whole play. Which is saying something, because there's a lot of racialized characters in the play. There's a lot. Uh, after Daddy Warbucks decides to, like, adopt That's Annie. That's right. She's, like, all happy, so they do, like, a weird sexual jazz number about it. <laughs> yeah. Do you know, I did not know that the 1980s version existed until I got to college. The 1981, meaning the one with Carol Burnett and Tim Curry? Yeah. I thought the 1990s one was the original. Oh, Oh, my God. How is that even possible? That's wild. That's so wild. I like the Quavante Wallace one best. The Tim Curry one is absolutely the best one. I watched that probably every single day of my childhood until I was 18 and moved out of the house. Do you want to actually talk about agriculture? Yeah, I really do. This is not an Annie musical podcast. (laughs) As much as I wish that it was, if I'm really being honest with myself. Okay, so what are we what are we talking about today? So here's the, the thing that I realized is that I don't know how a farm works. Like I read Charlotte's Web in elementary school and I drive past farms, okay. but that's it. That's all I know. What do you mean that's it? You like lived and worked on like a, a working farm, right? <gasps> Oh my god, I forgot I did that. It was a boarding school. It was more of a boarding school. Like it was a boarding school that had a farm. That had a farm that you like worked on. I tried to block that out because I hated it. I spent a lot of time like digging for potatoes and freezing rain. (laughs) Fair, I guess. It's also probably not representative of most production farms. Yeah, I don't think um, high schoolers work on most farms. Well, I guess, that, I don't know. Do they? <laughs> A lot of high schoolers do oh, work nice. on farms. Was not alone. Okay, so what I wanted to know, first off, is like the Charlotte Webb, like mom and pop and kid, like in... 4-H with a Chevy truck out back kind of farm. Is that, like, real? Or is that something that we just see in, like, picture books? That is real. Nice! (laughs) I thought that it was all owned by, like, big agriculture or something. What do you mean by that? That 
because I remembered you saying once that most family farms are big or that most big farms are family farms. So I was kind of worried. Most farms are family farms. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. I got that right. Um, so I was kind of worried that that, uh, that like small business side of farms didn't exist anymore and that it was just in Charlotte's web. Okay. Good questions. Uh, so 98% of farms in the U.S. are family owned. They're family wow. farms. Meaning that they are run and operated by someone who is the person who owns it or is related to the person who owns it. A lot of big farms are still small businesses, which is hard to understand. But even if you have a big farm, you're still probably getting fairly small margins. So oftentimes, even if you have hundreds of acres in production, you might still be turning quite a small profit. Okay. So you talked about big farms being small business and i've heard you use the terms large scale and small scale farms and i was wondering if there was like a hard line between those two like by hectares or yield or profit or anything so there are different lines that people will kind of use when they are talking to agriculturalists mm -hmm. about systems, but the ones that we kind of keep numbers on and keep statistics on is by economic profitability. So the USDA defines a small family farm as less than 350000 gross cash farm income. Okay. And then a mid-sized farm is 999000 to 350000 and then a large-scale family farm is above a million. You also have non-family farms, which for some reason they put in a separate category and don't also, like, it, it's not, these categories aren't just by economic profitability. They're just like the family farms by economic profitability and other farms just go into hmm. another category, which is kind of interesting. So I know that margins are pretty low, but like, a small family farm that's making like that three hundred and fifty thousand. What percentage of that would be mm -hmm. profit? Like, are these farmers living large on six figures, or like how does that work? So it very much depends on the farm, the farmer, the crop, where you are. Right, like if you're in California and you're making three hundred and fifty on like some high value horticultural crops, you may be making more money than if you're like in Iowa and making 350 on corn, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Uh, that said, the category small family farms is 89% of farms in the United States. Wow. Is that 89% of farms by total farms or by yield? By total farms. By total farms, 89% of them are small family farms. And most farmers are not wealthy, mm -hmm. right? Farming is hard. You don't make a lot of money. Oftentimes you can lose money. So no, you know, m most of that 350 is not going to be take home regardless. For sure. You know, respect to the farmers. And that, you know, up to 350, zero to 350,000 is like a big 
range, right, for farms. So that includes people who have been farming like generationally and are doing what their parents and their parents' parents have been doing. And it also includes people who are doing what we call hobby farming. And it can also include new farmers who are getting into like small scale specialty crops. Uh, and it, it, it can just include a, a, a really wide picture. What it probably doesn't include is something that is quite large and making, obviously, quite a lot of money. So you're usually seeing folks who are running a bit of a smaller operation and are looking at a specific niche or folks who are running a mid-sized to large operation and are just farming commodities. Nice. Okay. Yeah, that does seem like a big range because like, I definitely know... F- or I definitely have friends who are not farmers by heritage or family or whatever you would call it, but are, you know, growing crops in their backyard or doing that kind of stuff. So I can definitely see how that's like a big difference between them and somebody who this is their family's livelihood for generations. Yeah, definitely. And not that you don't have folks like that in the mid-sized and large size, you really do. But I'm just saying this this lower one includes a lot of different kinds of people. When you get up to mid-sized and large-sized farms, you're often seeing folks who are kind of comparable to each mm-hmm. other, more so. So my next question was, you know, we're both from Texas. I live in the Midwest right now. You used to live, live in California, and those are both big farm places and so you drive by like giant farms and I feel like I never see more than like a dozen people out there at a at a time um how many people do those farms normally employ like is this a giant workforce or is this like eight people so it really depends on the crop and on where you are and on your farmer and how many kids he has or, you know, how many high schoolers he can wrangle into to coming by. Because uh, usually if you're hiring children, it's categorized differently in, you know, labor terms than if you're hiring a, a person, an adult person. The main thing I would say it depends on is the crop, right? If you're farming corn, it's going to take many fewer hands than if you're farming mm-hmm. zucchinis or strawberries or grapes, right? So unfortunately, it, it just kind of depends. If you go by a really big vineyard in California, that's going to be like hundreds of people, if not more. Wow. If you go by a really big corn farm, you're going to have some people, like a couple of people usually. That's crazy. I also did not know that individual farms employed hundreds of people. I was thinking like maybe like 40 or 50 max. Yeah, definitely hundreds during the growing season for for really large horticultural production, for sure. If you need folks out in the field picking, all of your plants are pretty much going to go to fruit at the exact same time, like within the same two-week period. And so if you have... 100 acres of something, then you need 100 acres picked. You need a lot of people out there picking. I guess that makes sense. Yeah. So the next thing I wanted to ask about is do most farms have like one crop that they specialize in or do they grow like a bunch and does that vary by type? And I know I came across some of this when we're doing the organics research, but for like 
conventional farms because that is the majority of agriculture. Yeah, so most farms everywhere do not have just one crop. Now, that's not always true, right? If you're like growing grapes, you're not also going to be growing something else because those grapes are going to be perennial. You're not going to pull them out to put something else in. Same with, you know, our other perennial crops like olives and most of our tree fruits. You know, you're not really going to be doing more than one crop probably. But for the annuals, for all of our row crops, for most of the rest of our horticultural crops, you will see more than one crop Mm -hmm. typically. Not always, but frequently. Usually in the Midwest, you see rotations of corn, sorghum, soy. Um, Sometimes you see alfalfa in the mix. You'll see kind of different row crops mixed in. Mm -hmm. Uh, When you're thinking about row cropping, you want something that kind of can fit your implements. So if you're doing hay, you can probably also do alfalfa because you also mow it and then bale it, right? So having something that, like, the implements you have for your tractor can also service is kind of key. Uh, When you're doing horticultural crops, there's some other things to think about. So oftentimes you have to think about pests. Real quick. Yeah. Can you clarify what a horticultural crop is? Because I thought that was all crops. Okay, yeah, good question. So our agronomic crops are things like wheat, corn, sorghum, Uh, soybeans, these really, really uh, large-scale crops that are just going to be huge and are primarily grains Mm -hmm. or forage. Horticultural crops is things like fruits and vegetables and specialty crops. Okay. Nice. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Just because horticulture, usually, like, the horticultural crops are going to be a lot more labor-intensive, and they're going to be usually harder to grow than something like a row crop. So those are going to be ones where you're going to have, like, hundreds of people working on the farm. For sure. If you have hundreds of acres in sorghum, you're not going to need hundreds of people to run a tractor, right? Yeah. So there's different things to think about when you think about horticultural crops. Um, You usually want to think about pest harboring. Mm -hmm. So if you rotate between crops that have different pests, so, like, if you put zucchinis in... Squash beetles aren't going to then, like, attack if you put tomatoes in next year Mm -hmm. or something like that. Um, Or where I was in California, something you would see a lot was um, seed sunflowers and then tomatoes because those really don't have a lot to do with each other and you're not going to have any pest issues. Versus if you did, like, pumpkins and then zucchinis, those are going to have some similar pests. And so if you have pests on your pumpkins, some of those might stick around in the dirt and then you'll next year have pests on your zucchinis these are like year by year it's not like you would have like a row of sunflowers and then a row of tomatoes at the same time so it depends um usually it will depend on the size and kind of the market so if you're a smaller farm that's selling directly to consumers then you're probably going to have separate rows of separate vegetables, Mm -hmm. right? Like if you're a small scale farm outside of Austin, Texas, and you want to sell to restaurants, you don't want to only grow tomatoes one year because restaurants are going to be buying more than just tomatoes. And you're going to need to find a lot of restaurants to buy all of your tomatoes versus if you grew, you know, three things or eight things, then you'll be able to sell all of those in one season to a few buyers. That makes sense. Yeah, but the more things that you are growing, especially horticulturally, 
the more specialized you have to be when you're managing them and when you're harvesting them. So if you grow lettuce and tomatoes, those two things are harvested really Mm -hmm. differently. So if you're doing a huge production, like if you're doing hundreds of acres, having a row of tomatoes and then a row of lettuce is going to be harder because you're not going to be able to scale up your harvesting technique as much, right? So that's kind of what we see. So you mentioned people who sell directly to consumers, and that is what my next question is about. So you're reading my mind over here. Okay. Um... So I wanted to ask about farmer's markets. Anybody who follows us on Instagram, which you should, at one to grow on pod um, Anybody who follows us knows that I love a good farmer's market. I'm out there a lot. And so I wanted to know, those farmers who you see out there at the farmer's market, do they mostly sell through farmer's markets or do they also sell through more kind of conventional means. So usually if you see someone at a farmer's market, that's going to be the main place that they're going to want to sell. Uh, When you sell directly to a consumer, you're going to get a higher price point, right? Then if you sell to a grocery store, that grocery store is going to take a cut, but you're going to be selling it at the same price. So you're going to get less money take home. Okay, that makes sense. So when you're selling at the farmer's market, you're just getting all of that money, basically. There's no middleman getting a cut except for, like, whatever you have to pay for your booth, which is usually a lot smaller than whatever Mm -hmm. the grocery store would take. So when you see folks at the farmer's market, they're usually trying to sell as directly as possible. That's usually because they're quite a bit smaller farms, and so they can't take advantage of economies of scale the same way, and so they need that higher price point in order to stay afloat. So you'll see things like they'll sell directly to schools, they'll sell directly to restaurants, they'll sell directly to farmer's markets. You'll also often see things like U-picks, which is where they will like invite people to come out to the farm and pick their own fruits or pick their own veggies, and then you can pay for them there at the farm. We did that in Girl Scouts. Exactly, yeah. Um, There's also something called a CSA, which is Community Supported Agriculture, which is kind of you basically like get a weekly or bi-weekly delivery of food and usually it's like a mixed packet because usually it's like some kind of small-scale horticultural farm that's growing a bunch of different things and so you pay them like 15 bucks a week or something and then like at the end of every week they give you a bunch of fresh produce directly to you you don't get to like pick it or decide what's in the basket you just get the basket. Like a subscription box. Yeah, but for your farm, basically. I like that. I want to get that. It's it's so good. And honestly, y'all, it's so cheap. I did That's... that when I was an undergrad because there was some great farms around my college town. And I think it was a total of 15 bucks a week. And I split it with a friend of mine. So I played like seven and a half dollars. And I think we probably got about 10 pounds of produce every week and it was super fresh and it was so delicious and it was just really really inexpensive for the amount and quality of produce that we got it was way way like the cheapest way to get fresh produce in college for me other than like being an agriculture major and being able to just like go and pick some when i wanted to from the farm other than that other than picking fresh fruit from the ground like a summer goddess of produce yes (laughs) um you're gonna have to hook me up 
when I move home so I can get that nice farm subscription box. Yes, it's called Community Supported Agriculture. If you're interested, there are probably several farms in your area that have that. Where I'm at right now, there is not any. Where Catherine's at in Chicago, there are several. I'm sure everything is in Chicago. It's true. I can also uh, tweet out some resources when we drop this episode. Yeah, the thing is, it's just like quite regional. So sometimes you can find like statewide websites that are like all the CSAs, but usually the CSAs will change and there'll be more or fewer. And so they're often kind of outdated. The best way to find a CSA is to go to a farmer's market and kind of ask around and say, hey, does anyone in this town do a CSA? And then you can usually find some pretty good cheap produce. It's also a really good way to get fresh eggs as well. Sometimes you can get a CSA that's like just eggs and you can get like two dozen eggs a week for like five bucks a week, which is a lot. But if you eat that many eggs, I guess. Quick question about eggs. If I got my eggs from the farmer's market, should I not have them in my fridge? Because they're in my fridge right now. Good question. Um, You can have them in your fridge. It's more a question of if you can have them not in your fridge, which is kind of a question for your farmer. So I don't honestly know what the federal regulations are on who has to, um, like, clean their eggs so that they don't have whatever that enzyme is that makes them shelf-stable out on the counter. If you're a small-scale farm, you might not have to clean that enzyme off, and so you might have eggs that still have that on there. And so they might be fine on the counter, but they're not going to—putting them in the fridge is not going to do them any harm. So probably ask your farmer if you can keep your eggs not in the fridge. Ask your farmer about everything. Go talk to your farmer. Your farmer wants to know you. (laughs) Hashtag ask your farmer. Hashtag ask your farmer. Get to know your farmer. Friend, Befriend your farmer. Befriend your farmer. I like that. Befriend your farmer. Okay, so what else do you want to know? So I had a question about something we touched on earlier. And that yes. was if 98% of farms are family farms, did most farmers inherit their farms from their parents or grandparents or uncles or aunts or whatever? Yes. Nice. Okay. Great. Sometimes you see, I mean, family farms can include new farmers. Mm -hmm. If, like, you are the farm manager and you also own it, that counts as a family farm. Uh, But, yeah, a lot of them are handed down. Nice. Intergenerationally. That's so cool. The only thing my family does intergenerationally is work (laughs) with abused children, which is not the worst thing. That's a good thing to inherit, okay? I guess, yeah. Yeah, I briefly did that. My mom and grandmother both did that in my blood, I guess. But anyways, um, yeah, so I also wanted to ask about how many tasks are done by hand. Um, Like, are you out there, like, putting seeds in the ground, or is there a machine for that? You're probably not putting seeds in the ground. Um, if you're quite a small-scale farm, like if you're one acre or four acres, you might. Probably not, though. One acre is still a lot to hand seed. 
Yeah, no, you get a cedar nice. to do that. Is there anything that you would do by hand? Harvesting, if you're if you're doing horticultural crops, usually you have to harvest by hand. Sometimes you don't. There was, I think in like the 1970s or 80s, there was like this really famous tomato called the square tomato that was like the first tomato to ever be able to be mechanically harvested. It was not square. They just called it that. I don't know why it was round like every other tomato. But it was like the first tomato that you could ever mechanically harvest because most of our horticultural crops, including tomatoes, are really soft and squishy. And so you can't just like toss it into the back of a truck with like a mechanical robot arm. You also can't always like find it with a mechanical robot arm very correctly. Like if you're looking at a zucchini plant, you're going to have zucchinis kind of all over the plant. As opposed to if you're mechanically harvesting something like wheat, the wheat is at the top of the plant. It's not hard to find. That makes sense. (laughs) It's just there. Yeah. So increasingly with a lot of artificial intelligence and like... What what are those sensors called where you can like the the robots can look at something and kind of Optics? tell what it is, whatever that's Lasers? called. Um, they're able to build more and more robots that can actually harvest because we have fewer and fewer farm workers available because of many different factors. But primarily, currently, harvesting is primarily done by hand for horticultural crops. You know, I did actually just read some research about teaching robots how to grasp and hand off things. So this definitely seems like Mm. an application for that. But what I wanted to ask about animal farms or ranches is do ranches also grow crops or is it just about the cows or goats or whatever? mostly no they don't also grow crops um sometimes you will see small scale specialty farms that will have livestock and horticulture but it there is quite intensive to have both and again like if you're doing anything large scale you're looking for those economies of scale and so if you're diversifying your production it's hard to take advantage of those That makes sense. Yeah. Do you know, because I know a lot of organic farms use manure as fertilizer, is there any ever crossover where on the small scale farms they'll use manure from their own livestock? Definitely, yeah. That's, That's one of actually the biggest reasons why you see small scale farms having animals is because with organic farms, manure is one of the most significant costs typically. So if you can create your own while also monetizing whatever it is that's creating your own manure, then you can usually kind of save a couple bucks. All right. One more question about ranchers. Okay. How many people work on like a typical ranch? Because I know like your family had like 200 cows and like two employees, right? We had like no employees. It was like my uncle. Oh, I thought you had, oh, I forgot his name, but that, that guy who lived near your ranch. Yeah, he didn't really work much with the cattle. Oh. He didn't really do anything with the cattle. It was kind of just my uncle hmm. and the donkey and the donkey. his dogs. Your uncle's dogs or the donkey's dogs? 
Yeah, my uncle's dogs that would just kind of terrorize the cattle. So I mean, that's what dogs are for, right? Like, that's one of the reasons. No, that's not what they're for. But they were really good at it. Um, yeah, some, I mean, depends on the farm size. Again, you do need to have some cowboys and you have to have, you know, someone to feed them and round them up. Mm-hmm. Ranching, I don't know a ton about. When you, you know take a degree in agriculture you kind of usually have to specialize because there are just so many different things to think about so i honestly didn't learn that much about ranching when i went to school i do know that you need some people for anything that's you know commercially significant even though we had like 200 cows at our family ranch it really wasn't very commercially significant Um, that's not a very large herd something closer to like twelve thousand is a pretty standard herd size wow um in texas we have we have herds that are like you know way more than that way more than that like sixty thousand head of cattle uh so yeah you need some cowboys you need people to watch out for them make sure they're not dying or sick and make sure they're getting fed i don't know how many people that is but you do need some Hmm. it sounds like it's a lot less than like a plant farm I mean, it depends. If if you're, you know, doing row cropping in Iowa, you also don't need a ton of people because you're, again, you're running like a tractor. So you usually have like maybe a employee, sometimes more than that. But it's it's usually fairly small operations. For horticultural crops, things like fruits, vegetables, our specialty crops like olives and wine, you need a lot more people for those. Hmm. All right. One more question about employees. Okay. We talked a lot in Farm Workers' Rights about migrant workers and people who aren't members of, say, the family that runs the family farm who work on the farm. Do you know what percentage of farms hire migrant and temporary workers? So I don't think that data is currently reported. Makes sense. There are a lot of different entities that take statistics on U.S. agriculture, primarily within the USDA. I don't think that data is collected. I might be wrong about that. But again, it kind of breaks down by whether you're talking agronomic, whether you're talking, you know, ranching versus dairies or, you know, other feedlot production, whether you're talking about horticultural crops, things that are more labor intensive, you're going to need more labor. So you're going to have to hire folks. Oftentimes, if you look in the Midwest, you don't see a lot of migrant labor because one, that farming system doesn't really require a lot of labor. And two, there is not a lot of migration to Iowa or to Minnesota or Wisconsin or, you know, that whole area. We are really far from the border. Well, we're close to the Canadian border, but... Yes, you're much closer to the Canadian border. There's not as much migration for agricultural labor from the north to the south and from the south to the north. That makes sense. Alrighty, and then I also wanted to ask, because I know you have a degree in agriculture. Um, You have two of them. Do most people who own, manage, take care of farms, do they have agricultural degrees? Or is this something you more kind of learn growing up in this life and business? So I think 
total for the industry of like everyone who works in agriculture, the number is close to 30% have at least some college or more. For like the position of farm manager or supervisor or kind of those managerial roles, I think it's closer to 50%, but I think it is mm-hmm. under 50% have at least some college or more. Huh? So most most folks do not know do not have a degree in agriculture. You can definitely get one. And it's usually most helpful when you're thinking about the business side of, you know, trying to make those financial decisions, trying to navigate markets, trying to navigate debt. That makes sense. A lot of the other things you can learn if you have a a family member or if you can find a mentor who's been doing this, there's only so much you can honestly learn in a classroom. You, You can learn a lot more about day-to-day running a farm from someone who is currently or has run a farm Mm -hmm. but those business decisions is things that that's that's really where the college degrees really come in handy and so usually if you see folks getting a degree it's usually an agribusiness or some other kind of business degree nice okay yeah and then they go back and and run a farm i think the statistic for the general population is around 25% of people have a college degree. So that seems pretty in line with the general public with like 50%. Yeah, I think this number is for at least some college. So I don't know if like what the corollary is for the general public of just at least some college. But yeah. All right. I know we're getting towards the end, but just a couple more, I promise. So are there... No, you're good. (laughs) Are there like farms that are held by like... Big corporations? Because I, I know most of them are not. But are there those ones that are like, you know, shareholders and board members and CEOs and the whole nine yards? Okay. So I remember you asking me this question before we started. And I actually like went and tried to Google around because I had never heard of anything like mm-hmm. that. That's not to say I like... It doesn't happen, but I didn't know anything about it. So I decided to, like, Google it beforehand, before we sat down to do this episode, because I thought you would ask me about this. Um, I found something from the USDA. Mm -hmm. So, you know, 1% to 2% of farms are non-family farms, right? 98 are family Mm -hmm. farms. The rest are those non-family farms. That 2% is between 10 and 13 of the national production. So it's a really significant part. They're usually quite large. Um, 19% of the non-family farms had a gross cash farm income of above a million dollars. So 19% is not super high, right? That's... I mean, that's still one out of five. It is one out of five, but... And still, like, not to sound like a Wolf of Wall Street character, but like a million dollars isn't that much when you're talking about a large-scale business yeah no that's totally true but when we're talking about farms that is kind of the the threshold for large size however i did find this other quote that i'm going to read really quickly that was from the usda website Um, and it said most of the large non-family farms that were organized as corporations had 10 or fewer shareholders so Hmm. i couldn't find anything that definitely said like oh no general mills doesn't own any farms but 10 or fewer shareholders, you know, is saying, you know, this is a this is a fairly small corporation. It's not probably, you know, public it's, it's not publicly traded. What you usually see 
in terms of corporations, quote unquote, like owning farm production is contracts. So a lot of farms, especially those agronomic crop farms, uh, will enter into contracts before the growing season. So they will say, I am going to grow this much of this kind of seed and you are going to buy it for this price or you are going to give me this much money up front or something like that. And then they they kind of have a contract for that growing season. So that's how the majority of the agronomic production happens. That's how a lot of the horticultural production happens. So when you're looking at kind of how companies determine farm production, that's often what people point to is, you know, their money is kind of setting the prices and is setting what what kinds of seeds and what kinds of crops and varieties people are going to be planting, right? You know, if Orville Redenbacher is buying X number of tons of popcorn, then that's how many tons mm-hmm. of popcorn are going to be planted. So it's not necessarily that they own the farm, but they have a significant stake in how it's run. And sometimes in these contracts, you even see specifics about like, uh, you're going to apply this pesticide at this date or you're going to, you know, have these management practices or something like that. That's interesting. So it's like they don't own it, own it, but they do have control over it in a way. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Hmm. Well, that's all the questions I have. Do you have anything about how farms work that you just really wanted to share? Actually, I did. <gasps> nice. I'm excited. Yeah. So I found that of farm managers and like farm supervisors, that category, 16% is female. So there you go. That was a higher percentage than I was actually expecting. Um, As someone who works in the agricultural industry, there are not a lot of women in this field. So it's kind of cool to see that. I mean, 16% is still a low number, but there's still a pretty good number of women who are out here running farms. So pretty cool. Are there any initiatives, do you know, like all the STEM initiatives to get women into STEM? Is there anything like that to get women into ag management? There definitely is. And there is a lot of money. If you want to get if you are a young woman and you want to get a degree in agriculture, there is a lot of money out there for you. I know because I got some of it because I am a young woman in agriculture. There is (laughs) there there are a lot of initiatives encouraging women to get into agriculture. Women make up much, much less than 50% of the industry. I think it's around 25% of the industry. There's a lot of initiatives from a lot of different organizations, including the federal government, to encourage women to get involved in agriculture. So if you are interested, you can email us at onetogrowonpod at gmail.com and we can share some info about different resources for getting an education in agriculture because it's super great and super duper fun. And also you get so much free food, you guys. (laughs) Do it for the food. Do it for the food. I'm not even kidding. It is such a good reason to get an ag degree. Maybe I have to get an ag degree now. Ag degrees are the most chillest of all degrees and you get a bunch of free food and everyone's amazing and super nice. And that's all I have to say about that. Awesome. I think that's all I have to say for this episode. I think that's the end. Okay, bye. That's the end. Bye.
Thanks for listening to this episode of One to Grow On. This show is hosted by me, Hallie Casey, and Chris Casey. It is produced by Catherine RJ and Hallie Casey. Our music is Something Elated by Broke for Free. Connect with us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at One to Grow On Pod. You can find all of our episodes as well as more information about the show and the team on our website, onetogrowonpod.com. Join our community and learn more about each episode at patreon.com slash onetogrowonpod. There you can get access to audio extras, fascinating follow-ups, and even custom art created just for you. If you like the show, please share it with your friends. Sharing is the best way to help us reach more ears. Be sure to check out the next episode in two weeks. But until then, keep on growing. Bye, everybody.